certain foods that we consume that are harmful to us are foods that we are, in fact, addicted to. Right. So whether it's baked chicken or baked fish or whatever the case may be. So if you eat, consume these foods in moderation, you will always consume them in increased amounts over time because you're addicted to it. So you never tell an alcoholic to consume alcohol in moderation. You said not a bite, not a drop, not a crumb. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen, a download, a view, wherever it is that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Those views, by the way, on YouTube, doing tremendously well. Thank you guys so much for checking us out there. If you're new to a plant-based diet, maybe you're vegan curious, Today's show is going to have you rethinking two things. One, your relationship with food. And two, the way that doctors should be working with patients who are battling obesity. And that second one, whether you've been vegan for five minutes or for five years, it's something that should get you thinking. And I'm so excited about this week's show because it speaks to the very heart of why it is so hard for us to lose weight. It's because food isn't just food. Food is a relationship. It is our friend. And for some of us, at times, it can seem like it's our only friend. I know on my darkest days, when I was 420 pounds, it certainly felt that way. And my guests today are two doctors who understand that and are making great strides in helping people in their exam rooms win the battle of the bulge and come out on top in the fight for their life. So as we continue our series of interviews from the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, I am so thrilled to be able to welcome Dr. Baxter Montgomery to the show. He is a cardiologist from Texas who, despite practicing in the heart of cattle country, is having phenomenal success getting patients to rid their table of ribeyes. In fact, nearly 9 out of every 10 of his patients will eventually adhere flawlessly to a plant-based diet after binging on beef for their entire life. And how does he do it? It's not by threat. It's not by fear. It's about understanding and compassion and realizing that fast food, fried food, steaks are so much more than just food. They are friends. They are companions. They are a warm blanket for the soul. And saying goodbye to them can be one of the toughest things we ever do. And then you're going to hear from this gentleman. I really, uh, you know, had a horrible diet and I was sedentary lifestyle. Burgers, fries, hot dogs, processed food and junk like so many Americans do. And I didn't really see how that impacted my health. That is Dr. Steve Loam. He's a cardiologist based in Chicago who at one point tipped the scales around 250 pounds and said that the standard American diet had him on a path headed straight for the standard American diseases. 
And then one day, a film rocked his world. He goes from being a skeptic to doing his own research to then becoming adamant that a plant-based diet is the best prescription for preventing and reversing the same deadly conditions that he had been treating. And now he's using his own experience to break through to patients who share those same suspicions that he once had about a vegan diet. But first up in the exam room, the incomparable Dr. Baxter Montgomery. And I am joined by Dr. Baxter Montgomery. Uh, Sir, you have credentials for days, but let's go with two. You are the medical director of the Montgomery Heart and Wellness Center and the founder and president of the Houston Cardiac Association. With that, welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. For the people who aren't familiar with you, um, you are a cardiologist and you are a cardiologist, a plant-based cardiologist based in Texas. And when I think of Texas, I think of meat and a barbecue. That's right. That's... uh we like to consider Houston the barbecue capital of the world, and so meat is pretty important. You know, there's a lot of influence in the southern states. People who relocate from this, uh, Louisiana are very heavy meat eaters, and uh, seafood and beef and pork and all these things are, are pretty prominent in the diet of Houstonians. And given, given that environment, how much of a challenge is it for you to kind of disseminate this information, this research on plant-based nutrition? You know, it's interesting because one would think that it's very challenging. However, uh, because the diet there is very rich in meats and processed carbohydrates and high-fat foods, uh, the disease prevalence is relatively high as well. So when you have individuals come in to see, you, see me as a cardiologist with advanced heart disease, advanced diabetes, advanced hypertension, then they are motivated to make changes. Right. And many of them on many medications are threatened with surgical procedures, who've had surgical procedures, and who are suffering. So um, to the contradiction of what you may think, it actually makes it easier because patients are often sicker, especially in my situation. Are, are the patients surprised after they have had this heart attack? I, I ask you this question because I was speaking with Dr. Robert Osfeld yesterday about this very thing. Uh, you know, nobody wants to have a heart attack, but is there kind of a defeatist attitude for your patients who have suffered one and they think it's kind of doom and gloom and, you know, history's already been written and there's not much that they can do at that point? That's correct. Well, not only with heart attacks or heart disease, but diseases in general, often we see individuals who uh, become accustomed to having disease and so the disease state is the norm. And it's also a feeling in the general public. You know, to have high blood pressure, diabetes, it's the norm. And so oftentimes people become settled with their disease and accepting of the disease when they have no other alternatives or think they have no other alternatives. Right, right. Uh, Before we go on, we're going to talk about your wonderful program uh, down in Texas. But if you have a question for Dr. Montgomery, please go ahead and post that below. And uh, we will get to as many of them as we possibly can during this segment. Um, You actually developed a a program uh, down there. Walk me through this. What is the patient experience there? Yeah, so we we use a a food prescription uh, for treatment of our patients as an integrative therapy for a patient with advanced heart disease and other chronic illnesses such as diabetes and hypertension and the like. Uh, This approach evolved over our initial interest in wellness and helping our patients get better in a more global perspective. 
uh, we tried a number of different uh, dietary interventions over the, my career, and uh, we started using a plant-based diet over 15, 16 years ago. And personally, I started uh, doing things like juice feasting and cleansing and saw remarkable results. We started applying these uh, approaches to our patients mm -hmm. and saw amazing results. Now, these were patients who were coming in who were, uh, had a history of bypass surgery, were at uh, ejection fractions in the 10 to 20% range with normal being 50 to 55% or greater. Uh, these are individuals with advanced diabetes who had had diabetes for a long time. So we were reversing these illnesses or helping them reverse their illnesses in a very short period of time, days to weeks. And we were able to wean medication. So we made it uh, our business to implement this approach in a more standardized way in our practice. So we right. started boot camp classes. We even went to the point of building a restaurant on site Did that you? have meal plans. And we literally prescribed food because... When you put someone on a healthy plant-based diet, there are certain restrictions, so it's not enough just to eat plant-based. It can't be overly processed and the like. So we found that we were putting our patients on these diets. However, they may have gone out and got some vegan junk food. So we had to be more precise, and so we had to design the food. So we have a full-scale restaurant, plant-based. We have a food uh, classification system. Mm -hmm. uh, we've actually published the results of our of findings, of our clinical uh, findings in, our, in, in the me medical literature. Do you find since you've instituted that restaurant that you're seeing greater patient adherence to that menu, that dietary, that prescription that you're, you're giving? That's exactly right. So what we found is that, uh, and we, did a, uh, we published this, we had a group of individuals with high blood pressure and hyperlipidemia, and uh, we put them on the 28-day meal plan. We provided all the food for them, and we saw an 87% compliance of that. Wow. Now, that 87% compliance is... Uh, in the background of a very strict compliance criteria. So in other words, you have one bite, one drop, one crumb of anything off the diet, that's a non-compliant day. Poor. So that's a very stringent compliance criteria. And despite that, there was an 87% compliance on that regimen. Let me ask you, why is it that you're so strict with that diet? And I'll tell you why I asked that question after I get your answer. Yeah. And so I like, uh, we get that question and the word strict, and I like to turn that to the word precise. So, for instance, you know, I say it's not a bite, not a drop. You have to be 100% compliant, not 99.99. So when the patients ask me the question similar to what you ask, I'll say, well, if I'm going to implant your defibrillator or pacemaker, do you want my gloves 90% sterile or 100%? So when they see it in that context then we know the importance of being very compliant with the diet. That's number one. Number two is that we have to understand certain foods that we consume that are harmful to us are foods that we are, in fact, addicted to. Right. So whether it's baked chicken or baked fish or whatever the case may be. So if you eat, consume these foods in moderation, you will always consume them in increased amounts over time because you're addicted to it. So you never tell an alcoholic to consume alcohol in moderation. You said not a bite, not a drop, not a crumb, or in that case, not a drop. But the point is that you have to be very precise in your nutritional regimen because you're dealing with biochemical effects of food and you're dealing with the addictive nature of foods. I am so happy to hear you say that because I used to be 420 pounds. Wow. I understand. I never would have 
<laughs> I understand food addiction, yes. and it is very serious. I yes. look at food the exact same way you were you were talking about. It's yes. it's no different than any other drug. I talk That's about right. that a lot on this show. It's That's right. it's the same as cocaine. It's the same as nicotine. It's That's the right. same as alcohol. Any right. any vice. It's exactly the same. Yep, it's it's the same biochemically, but socially it's worse because. Those addictions are supported by society. Right. So nobody supports a crack cocaine addiction. Nobody supports an alcoholic addiction. But our society supports baked chicken addiction or yep. bacon addiction. And so those are the most harmful addictions because there's social support for those addictions, and that's the problem. Right. And the hardest part, though, is getting people to understand, even if they are morbidly obese, super morbidly obese, that food is an addiction. That's we right. just don't view it in that same light. That's exactly right. And even the thin people... Exactly. Are addicted to these foods who have high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, and high cholesterol. Right. And so regardless of their body habits, the bad food consumption is a problem. Yeah, it, it really, I mean, I couldn't go, I would go through physical detox if yes. I didn't get, I was addicted, Taco Bell was my vice. I talk about that a lot too. You know, like yeah. if I didn't go to Taco Bell, I would literally feel ill. I That's would, right. you know, start to shake. It was kind of like watching somebody go through any other detox. You That's know? right. I, That's I can't right. say that it was as severe as coming off an opiate addiction or anything like that. But what I can say is I was not a very pleasant individual to be around. No, what you point out is correct. And, and our patients, when we put them through a detox, so... We'll see a typical patient coming in on maybe 10, 15 medications. They have multiple chronic illnesses. And when we start their detox, we see them in the office weekly. So, and, and we wean the medication. So it's a very intense program. It's not a willy-nilly eat plant-based and I'll see you in a month or two. We follow them very closely. Sometimes I see them maybe the day after, two days. So we do very frequent visits. We may see someone anywhere from five to 10 times within a month's time. Uh, in terms of detoxing, following them, weaning their medications. That's so, so important, you know, and, and I'm sure that some people struggle more than others, man, but that's it, right. I, I, I'm really happy to hear that the adherence rate is 87%. Uh, you know. Yes, yes. On a, well, and you have a supportive program. Uh, oftentimes, people will come in, our patients will come in, and they seem overwhelmed by the task of, you mean I can't have this for the rest of my life? So what we do is we say, don't worry about the rest of your life. Let's worry about four weeks. Uh-huh. And so let's give me 100% for four weeks, and then after that we talk. What typically happens is that high success rate for four weeks, we can even go six or eight weeks. However, after that, we typically see people who will, quote-unquote, fall off. And we expect that. However, we have them do intermittent detoxes over time. So that intermittent detox effect over time has a progressive change, creates a progressive change in the taste buds, food desires, so there's a psychological change that we're noticing. Sure. Uh, and so they're able to adhere to a healthier plant-based diet over time, and it becomes easier. Uh, what we tell our pla- patients and clients is the following. It's not a matter of willpower over time. We're trying to get you to change your food desires. Yep. And so that's the therapy. It's not the treatment of your hypertension, your diabetes, your heart disease. It's the treatment of your lethal food desires that we're trying to address first and foremost. And let me tell you, you know, I've, I've talked with so many people who are trying to lose weight and, you know, say that they're, they're game and they're gung-ho for it. I've had people go so far as to ask me, well, what if I just, you know, get a combo meal at McDonald's and just chew it up, but I spit it out before... 
I eat, you know, swallow it. That's food addiction. That's right. Have you that's had right. patients like that? Well, that's, yeah, that's yeah we've seen that. I've had, they've asked, can I juice the meat? Can I, you know. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. It's, and and that, it goes back to the food that's addiction. Right. People just don't equate food in that. But that's then right. you think, like, these people are going to the same lengths to try to get that fixed. Well, then. Think about this, right? This is a little bit extreme, but think about somebody that's trying to cover, you know, a drug addiction and is shooting up between their nose or in their wrist and lettering the, letting right. the watch cover right. those those track marks, right. you know? And, and that's, that's the important thing. And so uh, I go to the point of telling them, don't, if, the, if, if a piece of meat or oil or fat from animals touch your edge of your plate, you throw the plate away. Yep. Don't let it touch your fingernails. So you have to push in the other extreme to help them break that because they want to have just a little bit of edge kind of have a little bite of this every now and then can I chew it and, uh, and, and spit it out yeah uh, can I lick it and so I go to that extreme you know you don't even think about it uh, because you know that helps you break that addiction man I, I you are the first doctor that I've spoken with um, that I mean gets it 100 percent you mm-hmm. I, I mean like listening to you Mm-hmm. I the the old four hundred pound me is like just listening and being like he gets it <laughs> yeah, you yeah, absolutely yeah. get it and it's, and that's so critically important yeah I get it you know my patients over the years have taught me so one patient I had and uh, it was a gentleman that actually was doing some IT work for us he was in the offices feeling bad we checked his blood pressure very high so we you know uh, worked him up and we said okay you need to get on this plant based diet in addition to other things we're doing so he started on the diet. And within, I think, midway into the second week, he uh, was driving by a Popeye's chicken. So uh, big in the South and, and so on. So anyway, every Tuesday they have a special. You know, Tuesday special, 99 cents for Popeye's chicken. So anyway, he was driving along, and subconsciously he drove into a Popeye's chicken parking lot. Wow. He parked his truck, got out, and he started walking into the Popeye's chicken. So he's telling me the story. So in his mind, he's hearing voices. You should not be here. You should not be here. You should not be. And he's walking into the Popeyes. The voices are getting louder. You should not be here. You should not be. He's in line waiting to order. And the voices overtake him. He turns around, leaves the Popeyes, get in his truck, and starts crying out yep. loud. Yep. And that, he says, I'm not even an emotional person. But that had an emotional effect on him. And I've had very similar stories from other patients. People have an emotional attachment to food. That amounts to addiction. Man, uh, I could talk to you all day about food addiction. So uh, let it be known, sir, I, I'm extending an invitation to you to come back anytime. Okay. I, I feel like before we wrap this up, I need to take at least one viewer question from sure. Facebook. Sure, sure. Uh, somebody writes, is it possible to eat too much fiber on a plant-based diet? Wow, great question. Um, I have not seen anyone eat too much fiber on a plant-based diet. Uh, I have my patients complain about how much they have to chew and how sore their jaws get. Uh, And so uh, I'm going to say no to that based on my experience. However, I imagine somebody else may have a different experience. But I've not seen anyone eat too much fiber on a plant-based diet. Their jaws tend to wear out first. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, that was a a quick answer. So we'll end with this final question. Should vegans take an EPA or DHA supplement? You know, that's a great question. We do supplementation on an as-needed basis. There are many vegans who need to take those supplements. There are many non-vegans who have to take those supplements. But we measure 
you know, those levels first. We do extensive blood tests. We measure for intracellular uh, nutrients and, and phytonutrients and, and, and minerals. And we supplement in a targeted fashion based on someone's deficiency because deficiency is not only based on consumption, be it adequate or inadequate, but it's also based on the body's condition. So someone may have a burnt-out adrenal gland, for instance, and due to the fact they're not resting well or whatever the case is, and that mineral metabolism may be off. And so you may have to supplement magnesium or other things. So we target, we supplement based on measurements of levels, and we do it in a target fashion. Dr. Baxter Montgomery, I, I, I really, I can't wait to have you back on because I feel like you and I, we, we got a bond now. <laughs> can't sir. wait to come back. We got a bond. At the top of the show, I mentioned that saying goodbye to unhealthy food was one of the hardest things in the world that you could ever do. Quitting smoking was about 100 times easier than breaking myself of a daily Taco Bell habit. I was invited to speak to a plant-based group in Southern Maryland this past weekend, and I detailed every single thing that I would get at that drive-thru. $20 worth of food that today I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. But here's the craziest thing. From time to time, I'll see pictures of those burritos, of those quesadillas, and I'll start to crave them. Ten years later, ten years after I've lost the weight, and there is still something in my mind that pops up and it says, I want one. And that is food addiction. I'll take it a step further. Never once did I feel the urge to put my fist through a wall because I was trying to give up cigarettes. But you better believe I did that with seven-layer burritos. I put my fist through the wall, and then I sat down, and I cried. And I beat myself up internally because I was wrestling with it. I beat myself up wondering, why couldn't I beat this thing? Why does it have such a hold on me? What is wrong with me? Why am I such a failure? Of course, nobody in that position is actually a failure. They're fighting a very real addiction. And so it's so great to hear Dr. Montgomery talk about how he's working with patients to help them crack that code. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the psychology of food addiction, I highly recommend going back and checking out the food addiction episode that we did of the Exam Room podcast. Now, this is just my opinion. But even if someone has never been overweight a day in their life. I'll bet you, I will bet you anything that they have experienced some form of food addiction. It is a powerful force, man. It is a powerful, powerful force. And next up, someone who also understands that. Dr. Steve Lohm. He's a cardiologist who went from staring down the barrel of the same diseases as his patients to becoming an inspiration for us all. He was fed up 
with the standard way that he was treating these ailments. And he was even more fed up with the way that he was feeling. So he took a good, long, hard look in the mirror, and he decided, hey, it's time to change. Dr. Steve Loam joining me now here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. My man, before I even let you say a word, I have to give you props, because it was at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine last year that you and I first met. It was at the very end of the conference. We have this wonderful conversation. You say, hey, I got to go now. I'm flying home to Chicago. I'm doing a triathlon in the morning. <laughs> Wow. Talk yeah. about a first impression. Yeah, it was crazy. It's uh, just like so many people, I have such a passion for the whole plant-based nutrition message. I actually gave a presentation the night before coming out here until late at night. I couldn't get a flight in on time the way I wanted to, so I actually had to drive from Chicago to Detroit to hook onto the flight in order to come out here for the conference. And then when the conference was over, 7 a.m. on Sunday, I had a triathlon, so I had to actually fly to Detroit and then drive back to Chicago, and I pulled in at 6.30, triathlon started at 7. I finished, but uh, didn't win it. <laughs> It though, man. That is dedication to the cause, man. That's crazy. Whatever we can do to... Were, were the legs a little stiff? A little bit, but that's all right. <laughs> you recover, right? <laughs> all right, so you are, uh, you know, like you said, based in the Chicago area. People who aren't familiar uh, with you, talk to me a little bit about your work. Sure. Well, I'm actually a cardiologist, a non-invasive cardiologist, focused on prevention. And uh, I really like to work on uh, in heart disease reversal and, and lifestyle medicine concepts and approaches. <clears throat> and the, the whole background kind of goes from uh, a long time ago. I raised on a standard American diet. Right. And I was well on my way to the standard American diseases. I got up to about 250-some pounds at one point. Wow. Uh, yeah, throughout my training and such. And I really, uh, you know, had a horrible diet. And I was sedentary lifestyle, burgers, fries, hot dogs, processed food and junk, like so many Americans do. And I didn't really see how that impacted my health. But as I was having so many chronic diseases starting popping up, I finally had that realization I needed to do something about my health. And it was perfect timing because it really coincided right with when I was getting frustrated as a cardiologist. I had been a cardiologist for four years and really getting sick of the pill and procedure approach. Right. I knew patients didn't like the pills. They had side effects. They cost money. And even if I gave them all the right evidence-based, guideline-driven medications, they might still have a heart attack or stroke or need a bypass. So I knew something was wrong. And then, boom, perfect timing for forks over knives. It hit me, and it just rocked my world. I couldn't believe it that I didn't learn the stuff in training and I thought it was propaganda and not legitimate, but as I did my own research and met Kim Williams, who is one of the main people that's inspired me, it really, really drove my passion for the whole lifestyle medicine, plant-based nutrition concepts, and now that's the main focus of everything that I do. Why do you think that there is still so much criticism and skepticism about preventative nutrition, specifically through a plant-based diet? You know, that's a great question. That's one of the hugest questions I asked myself when I first learned about it. Because when you when you see this stuff and you watch Fork Surfer Nights, you're like, whoa, why isn't everybody talking about this? Why isn't everybody doing it? And I think there's so many different reasons. There's like probably 10 different main reasons. Obviously, it's cultural. It's taste preference. Most physicians don't eat healthy or exercise themselves. They don't get reimbursed for it. And they just don't know the science. They just don't read the science. Nutrition science is not sexy. It's not what we really go through. And it's not published in the medical journals that most doctors look at. So you combine all of those factors together and, and probably many more. And, you know, it's the reality of our current system. When I was a student, I got taken out to steak dinners by drug reps almost every week. Wow. And you get so brainwashed, not only, you know, eat this food, eat this food, which is very unhealthy for you, but 
you're so brainwashed to think a drug is a solution to every problem, and it completely takes you away from the, even the mindset of the power of lifestyle medicine and nutrition. And so it's just the reality, and it's nice to be able to step out of that reality and have that realization and, uh, and see it from the other side. And now that once you do see it from the other side, that's where that energy and that passion really comes yeah. from to try your best to, to make a difference. You know, I, I was thinking about that myself just recently this morning before we spoke i was like well why is it and i think it comes down to people's relationship with food that begins basically the moment that you're born yeah you know it's it's all of these things that are introduced sitting around grandma's kitchen table eating bacon and eggs going out for burgers with dad grilling in the backyard with dad those hot dogs so you're not just asking people to take food off of their plates you're legitimately asking them to end a relationship. That's exactly That's why right. we use that term here, break up with bacon, because it is a relationship. It is. And that's, I think, people don't even realize that that's where a lot of that pushback comes from. That's absolutely right. But with, like, most bad habits and other things that negatively impact your health, if you really, really read the science and understood it, logically it just makes so much sense that we have to break up with bacon and we have to break up with the animal products and the processed foods. It's just people don't want to hear it. They yep. don't want to listen to it. Yeah. And it's still, you know, just like with smoking. Everybody knows smoking's bad for you. Then why the heck is it so many people still smoke? But, but still, like, as an ex-smoker, I can tell you that when I stopped smoking, I would say to people out loud, I miss my friends, my yep. cigarettes. Because they had become my friends at that absolutely. point. Absolutely. And, and, and actually, just like many food addicts or, or any standard American who likes eating animal-based foods, nobody's going to say, even in the plant-based world, that we don't like the taste of those things. It, the taste could be great, but is it worth that negative health impact that it has for yourself, not to mention environmental and other things, too? So, you know, we understand that, and we understand yeah. it. It's just taking it to that next level, making the change, which requires a lot of individual motivation it requires a lot of support which we don't have in our current culture and our current food system and we don't have the support in our current healthcare system so i'm sure hoping that with conferences like this and podcasts like yours that we're slowly swaying that support and, and giving people really the tools that they need to get it and break up with bacon finally <laughs> and, and so now when you're working and we're going to talk about a fun event coming up in your neck of the woods in just a second but when you're working with a patient now and they come in and they have that skepticism that you and I are discussing, how do you break through that barrier? So that's a challenge, and it's a big challenge. And honestly, even the best person might only uh, get a, a small percentage of people to really get it and make dramatic changes. So it really, each person's different. I get the person who comes to me specifically for the lifestyle medicine approach. Those people are a lot easier. But the person that's the deer in the headlights has no clue that I'm going to tell them to give up meat. Those are always really interesting, and you've got to kind of play it case by case. If they're motivated, you go all in. But really, they need to be educated. Knowledge is power. They need to know. And so when I see somebody who I think really could benefit from it, I have to spend the time. I pull up videos. I pull up PowerPoints. I go through it to make sure that they understand the science and understand the power. And then I have to ask them the question because I could lecture somebody forever. Yep. Are they going to go out and make the change? I don't know. Probably not. You really need it to be their idea and you need to hear from them. What is it that you think you can do? What can you handle? Do you understand this? Do you have any questions? Don't. What do you think that you could do to, or what are your goals in life? Why do you want to live long? And when they see those things and they focus on the positives, not the negatives, if I say, listen, if you keep doing this, you're going to die. You're only 45 years old. You had a heart attack. You're lucky if you live to 55. If you play the negative approach, it's a lot less effective than focusing on the positives, the great things they could do with their life. Ask them, what do you want to live for? What do you want to do with your life? And is it worth making these changes? And some people, they get it that way. Yep. And they'll make big changes. Other people... 
they kind of get it, but not enough to make big changes. And that's when I start to say, hey, please, just eat an apple a day. Or, <laughs> or can you just do oatmeal for breakfast, just in small changes? And I make a little note in the medical record, hey, uh, this is how far we got. They're just going to try having oatmeal for breakfast six days out of the week. Right. And, and then next time I say, how'd the oatmeal go? And they're always surprised. I can't believe you remember that. And, uh, and small steps. So, you Baby know, steps. it's so different from person to person. But every single person that I see has cardiovascular disease, essentially, the cause of their disease is diet and lifestyle related, right. then the treatment needs to be diet and lifestyle. So that is always the prime focus of the conversation we have universally without exception. It, it seems like such a, a simple solution sitting here. You yeah. Know? But, you know, you take a step back and, and it, it, people just view it as being so complicated. And it's not. It's actually the opposite. I tell people the body is an amazing healing machine. We tend to think we need drugs and stents and bypasses and all these things in order to take the imperfection of the human body. We clogged our arteries up. The body's imperfect. Aging, genetics, all these things. The body is not imperfect. It is absolutely perfect. And it will heal itself if you just remove the thing that's causing the harm. That's what we do when we go to a plant-based diet and don't smoke and stay active. You're no longer injuring your arteries and the body heals itself. No different than if somebody cut their hand with a knife and sat back and did nothing, the cut will heal itself up. It'll stop bleeding yep. and scab over and scar over. However, if you cut yourself every single day, three times a day, it's never going to heal. Well, our arteries on the inside are no different than the skin on the outside, except we continuously injure our arteries three times a day with what we eat and smoking and other things like that, too. Just stop the injury and you'll heal. How basic of a concept is that? What a great analogy. Yeah. What a great analogy. Um, before I let you go, we have a fun event coming up August 24th in Chicago called 10 Cities, pcrm.org slash Chicago to, uh, to sign up there. You're going to be there, I understand? Yeah, I'm going to be there. Dr. Barnard, Dr. Kim Williams. It's going to be a phenomenal event, cooking demos, testimonials. It's going to be something that you don't want to miss, Chicago. And it's, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. Yeah, free blood pressure readings. Get your weight checked. You learn, like you said, all about nutrition, heart, health, uh, diabetes, brain health, how it impacts your brain. That's super That's important, kind of important as well, yes. right? You know? <laughs> so lots of cool stuff. Uh, I know, just having worked with the Physicians Committee for, for a while now, that uh, these events are really, really impactful. And I heard somebody say something like there are already 400 people signed yeah, up for this. Yeah, I believe they initially had 300 people. It already filled up, so we were able to expand it. And I think it's going to be six or 700 people, hopefully. So hurry up and sign up before that sells out. How about that? August 24th, pcrm.org slash Chicago is the place to go for more info. Dr. Steve Loam, you have a standing invitation to come back on this show anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much, and I love what you do, and thanks so much for doing it. our interview about another hundred people have registered so you gotta get your name on that list right now if you're planning to go and you can sign up for the big event at pcrm.org slash chicago it is 100 free of charge and oh by the way we're even throwing in free breakfast you can't beat that Again, that event, August 24th at the Hilton Rosemont, 8 o'clock in the morning until about 12.30 that afternoon. Register right now at pcrm.org slash Chicago. Now, I want to go back and take a deeper dive on food addiction. Let's get into the science behind it. 
Let's get a little bit nerdy. And hopefully this chat will give you a little bit more of not just understanding of this mental war that's raging inside so many of us, but compassion for those who are in the trenches. And for that, we're going to revisit a conversation I had with Dr. Barnard. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. This is the Weight Loss Champion, Chuck Carroll, and I am here with Dr. Neil Barnard. Today's topic is a very important one, one that more of us struggle with than I think we even recognize, and that topic is food addiction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Barnard. Thank you, Chuck. I was doing some research before we get going on this, um, and it, it kind of shocked me that food addiction is this prevalent. According to an NIH study that was done not too terribly long ago, uh, as many as 7% of women and 3% of men uh, are classified as food addicts. Um, I personally, having been one, could say, well, those numbers could be a little bit higher. But overall, I mean, that's, that's a pretty substantial portion of the population. Yeah, and it really depends on how a person defines it. It can be much, much higher. For example... Um, let's say we're not necessarily talking about a problematic addiction, something that gets you into trouble, but something that's clearly addicting, like a morning cup of coffee. Right. How many Americans would, would say, you know, I have one every morning. Are you addicted? Yeah, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, because it doesn't have any moral overtones, people <laughs> will, will readily agree right. that that's them. And they know it's physical. They know it's caffeine because they drag out of bed and they haven't had their coffee and they feel withdrawal until they've had, had their dose. The, the point I'm making is I think these numbers are low. Hmm. Um, I think that their addiction to foods is far more common than that, if not even universal, meaning that at some point in their lives, people get into a jag, a rut, a habit um, that has a physiological basis that has them eating that food that doesn't love them back, and they're, and they're having it every single day. I mean, I'll, I mean, we've talked about that on this show quite a bit, is, you know, uh, how woefully addicted I was to food and it was the same food every single day it was Boston Market for lunch it was taquitos at 7-Eleven on the way home with two 32 ounce Gatorades thank you very much Uh, and then it was $20 worth of Taco Bell for dinner and if I did not get those foods I turned into cranky pants you did not want to be around me and the longer I went without those foods the stronger the withdrawal symptoms became I got to a point when I would be two or three days out, I would start to sweat, I would start to feel nauseous, I would get really, really angry to the point where, as I've said on the show, I've put my fist through a wall because I wasn't getting my fix. And that's an addiction to food. Food, not a drug. Food. But you're pointing out something really, really important. It was a certain food that you had identified every day and at the same time a day. Yeah. Um, in other words, addictions have cycles. So you might love whatever it is and a person you know went out on a bender and they got totally drunk but that was completely out of character for them they hadn't done it before um and they didn't drink for weeks afterwards that's not addiction that might have been a bad choice but it might not have helped them but it's not an addiction addictions are on a daily basis or or even on a faster cycle than that uh, a tobacco addiction right nicotine is obviously addictive um 
the cycle is faster, you know, so you've got to have a cigarette every certain kind of increment. Um, but with food, it's very often a 24-hour kind of cycle. Mm-hmm. It's a certain food, and it's a certain kind of day. So you weren't at Taco Bell at 9 a.m. It was, it was a night, I'm, I'm going to say. Uh, yeah. um, it was a nighttime thing. Absolutely. Or for some people, the refrigerator is a magnetic 830 um, and you know what you want, or you're going to the very same store for the very same three chocolate bars, you know, every night or whatever it is. Yep. Specific food, specific time, and that is a, a sign. And and because you see this so often, that's why I think that I think that food addiction is much more common than is recognized. You know, researchers at Yale, it's funny you talk about that, researchers at Yale came out with a food addiction scale and one of the questions on there was um, asking people to rate whether or not they did this and that is you have a refrigerator full of every food under the sun but it doesn't contain the food that you want to eat at that certain day. Do you go out do you go out of your way ignore everything that's in the refrigerator and go to get your fix at that point? For me, it was absolutely yes. They put a lot of weight on that particular question. Yes, it's true. And, and there are others as well that relate to this. Um, do you feel that you've lost control? Um, are, are there certain foods where you eat enough and you're happy, fine, that's it? That's not an addic- addictive food. It's one that brings you beyond um, f- this normal satiety, and you're eating it for reasons other than being full, uh, just as you described with your own experience. Um, do you start hiding things or lying about it mm-hmm. uh, so you don't want people to detect what you've done? I mean, th- these are, are um, not unique to food, but they're, but they're common for addictions. And, and my message is let's demoralize it. Let's look at it just biologically. I believe that the human, the human brain is susceptible to addictions mm-hmm. um, and that it's uh, effectively ubiquitous. Right. And there are companies working really hard to make sure they are triggering exactly that addiction. So if it happens to you, it's not that you had a bad childhood. It's not that you necessarily have a genetic predisposition, although you may, and we, and we, should, we should talk about that. Um, but you may not. Uh, and people can fall into this really no matter who they are or where they're from or how cast iron their will is. Before we talk about which foods are the most addictive, you know, what food properties kind of light up the brain, let's talk about how that brain reacts in food addicts compared to those of a drug addict. You know, these studies that they've done are, are quite staggering, and they say, well, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the brain reacts very similarly with food addicts as it does with the drug addict. We have some fundamental neural circuitry that's designed to reward us. And what nature had in mind was not to reward you for a Snickers bar or a Taco Bell meal. Uh, what nature was thinking of is we need a reward circuitry for, let's say, uh, you find just a good, healthy uh, food source so that you will remember where you found it. You'll, you'll, you'll uh, key in on all the cognitive things about where it is and, and remember to have it again because biologically that will support you. Right. Um, the same circuitry, by the way, is triggered when you find a receptive mate. So um, th- these things sustain the individual and sustain the species. Um, it's a little humiliating to think we have circuitry like that in our brains, but we didn't design the system. We're stuck with it. Um, now, that circuitry gets triggered. Okay. It gets triggered by all kinds of things that, that, that hijack it. Uh, no, when, when human beings evolved to have this circuitry, and by the way, animals have it too, um, nobody had figured out how to ferment grains and to make no beer. liquor, yeah. <laughs> liquor, beer, wine. Um, but once we had that technology, you suddenly discover you can feel not just good, but you can feel better than anyone has ever felt um, because you're triggering that pleasure circuitry. And, and what the circuitry does is one cell sends dopamine, these little molecules of dopamine, to 
the adjacent cell. That sets up, it propagates a pleasure response that doesn't just feel good. It, it does that, but it also kind of sets a timer saying, put this on repeat. Hmm. Do this again. Mm-hmm. Do this again tomorrow. Same time, okay? Right. Um, and dopamine does that. Um, so alcohol can do it, obviously. And then when people figured out how to make cocaine, you know, it's, it's a leaf. But somebody figured out how to, how to extract cocaine. Uh, tobacco with nicotine, uh, opiates, heroin, and right. others. And uh, no surprise, it's also things that we ingest that we, that we call food, but that nature thought, wait a minute, you know, it's not necessarily food. You take sugar cane, mm-hmm. and you throw away all the fiber and all the pulp, and you extract just the sucrose from it, uh, or sugar beets. Uh, people can get hooked on sugar as well. I don't think that that's an uncommon addiction. Uh, you know, you go through any checkout line in any supermarket in this country, uh, and you will see a bevy of candy just staring right at you saying, grab me. And and that's why I want to get away from this idea of addiction as being a terrible thing. Um, I, I don't mean to say it's helpful, but I mean to say it's not a moral failing. Um, and if a person doesn't want to use the word addiction, just call it a jag, or I got into a rut. But the idea that person A is a sugar addict and person B isn't, wait a minute, like, Everybody can be or has been or will be a sugar addict at some right. point in their life right, right. because it's it's ubiquitous. It's, it's wafted into our culture, and it gets mixed with things to make it more addicting. Like sugar alone, addictive. Right. But you mix it with a little cocoa butter. Um, the fat sugar balance, about 50-50, uh, will cause the, the dopamine neurons to say, okay, now we're on to something. And, and there are... I believe, like, we'll just call them food scientists think tanks that work for these large restaurant corporations whose sole function is to figure out how to make people crave these items a little bit more, how to get more of what it is that will trigger that response. Success for them is defined by what goes over the cash register. So if something is <laughs> scanned over the cash register and they are making money, that is success. How do you do that? You can, you can modify the fat-sugar mixture of a candy bar. You can modify the s- salt content of a bag of potato chips. Mm-hmm. And you can modify these things to make them more or less addicting. And that's what the companies are doing. Um, and they're pl- also playing with, with timing. Um, fourth meal. You know, that's, uh, okay, I know that one. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. Or, uh, and sizes. Um, because uh, addictions have doses. So a person starts out as uh, uh, having occasional cigarette. And occasion- they work their way up and their dose is a pack a day. Or my dose is a pack and a half. And you find your dose. You, you accelerate, you stay at your dose, and, and you're there. So if, if it's fast food at night, there's a certain amount that you want every night, and you tend to not go under, and you tend to not go too much over that dose. You, you get there. And so the scientists want to know what that is. They want to package that for you to maximize their profit. That's, yeah, that's – yeah, that's very – Interesting and, and kind of scary science. Uh, at, at it it is scary, but, but if people want to blame somebody, stop blaming your parents or your upbringing or yourself or your weak will. There are people working hard to addict you, and they're, they're going to do it. And, and, and not only do they figure out what's going to be in the, the food, but they also make sure it's dangled in front of you. Mm-hmm. There was a time when gas stations sold gasoline. Now, nowadays, you go and you fill your car and you can't pay for it without being confronted by every possible snack food that's there 
um, you can go into bookstores. And at the cash register, they've got these, these same kinds of things. It's because the manufacturers figured out ways to dangle their stuff in front of you. And they'll do it on television. They'll do it everywhere they can. Oh, sure. They've even got TVs at the gas pump now. You don't even have to go inside to the store. I mean, they fill up on gasoline. And oh, by the way, fill up on these chips. Fill up on this soda as well. Come inside. We've got a great deal going for you. You right. get a nickel exactly. off. Um, we've touched on... Uh, chocolate a little bit candy so sugar clearly one of the more addictive substances food wise what else should we be looking for um well speaking of sugar you can take a baby day one of life and uh, let's say we're going to draw a blood sample from that baby we do a little little heel stick we draw some blood put it in a in a, a tube send it to the lab the baby cries instead of doing that I'll take some sugar, put it in maybe a teaspoon of sugar, put it in a cup of water, and dribble some of it into the baby's mouth with a little syringe. Then you do the heel stick. The baby doesn't cry. Really? Or cries less. Um, and people have noticed this with, with all kinds of things that are painful to the baby, um, or with other, uh, like a medical procedure, and they found that sugar acts as a little bit of a painkiller. Um, except if mom was a, hor- a heroin addict. If mother was a heroin addict, uh, sugar tends not to work so well. The po- here's, here's why. Sugar on the tongue triggers the release of opiates in the brain. In turn, those opiates trigger the release of dopamine, the pleasure chemical we were talking about. Right. If the baby happened to have a heroin-addicted mom, the baby was bathing in opiates for nine months and now is basically just in withdrawal. The, the, the baby's in withdrawal wow. after, birth, after birth, and the sugar is not going to really raise the opiate level in that brain to, to the point of, of uh, to be very significant. Wow. Um, so, the, again, the point is... This is everyone. Right. Um, everyone can, can have this effect from sugar. Now, with chocolate, chocolate's sweet. Chocolate has sugar added. Uh, but a person who wants chocolate doesn't just want a box of Domino sugar. They specifically want chocolate because the chocolate adds, first of all, it's a mixture of some sugar and also the cocoa butter is enhanced. Mm-hmm. It, it's, not just, it's not just the bean extract. They actually increase the amount of cocoa butter because if you get the right mixture, it's more addicting and more satisfying. Right. There's a little bit of caffeine in chocolate. There is a lot of theobromine. If anybody has a dog and the vet said, don't let your dog have chocolate uh, because the chocolate can hurt the dog. Right. What the vet is thinking of is theobromine. In a human, it's a stimulant. In a dog, it, it is such a stimulant, it can be, pain, it can be fatal. Wow. Um, there are other compounds in chocolate too, but these help us explain why a person who wants chocolate wants chocolate they don't just want something sweet right they don't want hard candy they specifically want chocolate because that's an addiction interestingly enough you can take uh narcan the drug used for heroin overdose um give it to a chocolate addict and then you give them a tray of chocolate by the way i don't don't mean a person who appreciates chocolate i mean a person who will binge on chocolate You pre-treat them with Narcan, which is a drug that, that effectively knocks – it makes heroin or morphine or, or any other narcotic not be able to adhere to the mu receptors in the brain. A, a chocolate addict will suddenly lose much of their interest in chocolate. Wow. And by the way, this is not a treatment. Um, this is a – you'd have to take it intravenously on your way into the 7-Eleven. Um, this, <laughs> this is a um, – it's a research tool okay. where a person says, oh, I just like chocolate. I, j- I just love the taste. I like the mouthfeel. Fine. Let me give you some Narcan. And if your ingestion of that goes way down, that's a sign it was doing something in the brain. 
that we have now blocked. What about a less processed form of chocolate? Say somebody puts just a scoop of cacao powder uh, in a smoothie that they're making. No added sugar. The only sugars that they're getting would be from the natural fruit that are in that. You're getting it to be closer and closer to just a flavoring, um, which in and in of itself could have some opiate effect. Um, however, what really kicks in the addictive aspect of it is the addition of sugar and the addition of fat. Mm. The fat-sugar mixtures are, are a big thing. Uh, I was mentioning sugar before. Um, people like sugar, but they like it usually mixed with fat. Hmm. Um, a donut. Um, cookies. People think cookies, they're carbs, they're sugar. Look at the recipe of a cookie. It's got shortening. It's got butter. Um, the fat calories are usually higher than the sugar calories. In mm. fact, almost always. Um, but that fat-sugar mixture is what really gets us hooked more than the sugar alone. I would assume, and this is just my own opinion or hypothesis, I should say, milk chocolate perhaps a little more addictive than dark chocolate because of the increased dairy uh, quantity? Uh, could be two possibilities. One is, is yes, just um, it does change the macronutrient composition. The other is... Um, Dairy adds its own addictive component. Mm. Now, um, we talked about this before. The 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 casein, C A S E I N, casein protein in milk breaks apart in your digestion, and as it does so, it releases opiate-like chemicals. Um, there are lots of other amino acids that are released, but 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 as the casein digests, certain strings of three or four or five or six or seven amino acids little strings of beads, if you will, break out of the casein, they go to the brain, and they attach to exactly the same receptor that heroin would attach to or morphine would attach to. And in fact, they're called casomorphins, casein-derived morphine-like compounds. Um, We presume that they are there to calm down the calf. A a nursing calf Mm -hmm. gets milk, whatever nutrients milk may have, and a little bit of feel-good from mom. Um, it's calming to the baby. And, and by the way, the same is true in human milk. There's casomorphins in human milk. Um, but when you turn milk into something that a person is drinking in the amounts that Americans do, you get more casomorphins. Um, and when you turn milk into cheese, the casomorphins are concentrated. So Dairy that's something until we started doing this show that I was unaware was as addictive as it is. And I'll tell you, right before I went plant-based, I was a milk junkie. I mean, I was drinking close to a gallon of it a day. And let me tell you something, constipated, like you wouldn't believe. Mm, I will right. fully put that out there. And you talked about this a little bit on a previous show, but there's a very good reason for that, isn't there? There, there is. And it's not just that milk doesn't have any fiber you know, to keep you regular. Um, Let's say you had an operation, and after the operation, you got a, a painkiller, um, d- a shot of Demerol or something like that. It's a narcotic uh, to ease the pain. Most common side effect, constipation, because it doesn't just shut down you know, the pain sensation in the brain. It shuts down your digestive tract, the nerves that control that. Um, uh, let's say you linger a little too long at the cheese bar, <laughs> <laughs> and the next day... You know, you're at the drugstore for their uh, anti-constipation uh-huh. remedies. Very, very common side effect. And what we think is going on is you're just—it's just the effect of the casomorphins. Um, they're they're in direct contact with the gut wall, and they are shutting down the normal peristalt- peristaltic movements. Um, so yeah, you know, you get addicted to something, you're going to get constipated. Man, yeah, I can think of more pleasant days, my friend. Um, yeah, I'm going to call it uh, cheese. I say is dairy crack. 
And I would agree with that. You know, uh, I don't... Milk, milk has a little bit of casomorphin, but cheese has the mother load of it. And so a lot of people will say, I could be vegan except for cheese. Um, I have to say, it's, it's parenthetically perhaps the most important thing to get away from. Right. Um, only because it is 70% fat, mostly saturated fat. It's got hormones in it. I'm talking about estrogens from the, the fact that the cow was pregnant nine months out, right. of, out of the year. It's got, there's all, every reason to get away from it. Right. Plus, it's not just the casomorphin that makes it addicting. It's also, in this case, a fat-salt mixture. There's more salt in cheese than there, than there is in potato chips. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of fat. It's about 70% fat as a percentage of calories. That fat, salty mixture, that's why we love French fries, potato chips, onion rings, and cheese. And, and that makes sense because when I go back and I think about what it was that I used to eat, I was never a chocoholic. That was never my vice. I was never right. a candy guy. But you look at what I was eating, those taquitos, those trips to Taco Bell, all of those items loaded with cheese, loaded and I cannot explain why for one person it's going to be cheese and for another person it's chocolate and for another person it's sugar. That I don't know. And, and even among, let's say you take people where alcohol is their issue. Why for one person is it wine and another person it's liquor and another person it's beer? Um, why those things happen, I have no earthly idea. Um, why is it that one person gets hooked on menthol cigarettes and another person on regular cigarettes? But what we do know is that the final co- common pathway is always the same. Yeah. It's always dopamine. It triggers dopamine, and then the next day, you borrowed all that dopamine. It's now gone to you. It, you, you don't have it anymore, so you feel rotten mm-hmm. until you can conjure up another dopamine hit to just feel halfway normal. What about processed meat? That's something that we talk about a lot here. Let's... The king of all processed meats, bacon. Why is bacon such an addictive thing? Everybody, you know, that's everything's better with bacon. Why? Well, first of all, uh, it should be noted that when people have an addictive substance, they, they don't do – take alcohol. They don't do a commercial saying, buy our beer. It makes you drunker. Um, <laughs> it's it's going to get you drunk really fast. Um, but – Honestly, that's why people are buying it, right? Of course. Um, uh, buy our cigarette. It, it will give you that nicotine hit fast. If it were honest advertising, that's what they would say. But what they do is they want to instead create an aura. So the aura is our bottle of wine came from Tuscany. And it was on beautiful grapes that look fabulous in the sunrise, you know, covered with you. Yeah, or um, our back when cigarette advertising was was legal back in my youth, it was you're a cowboy. Yep. Um, or you're a cool jazz musician or whatever. They always create an aura. So um, that's true with food. Um, Arby's, we have the meat. Um, wh- what do they mean? What they mean is I'm masculine. I'm powerful. Now, of course, you might be, you might have erectile dysfunction and be overweight and, and whatever, but you're going to have this image that surrounds the meat product yeah. <laughs> with regard. So, so bacon has worked very hard to cultivate the fact that it's not just muscles ripped out of a really unhappy pig, um, despoiling the planet and making North Carolina look like just an environmental disaster. I yeah. mean, there, there is everything bad about this product. Um, but... Uh, they make it sound cool, and it's addictive for a variety of reasons, but to cut to the chase, I mentioned Narcan. You can give Narcan to Hank, um, inject it into his arm, and if he's a bacon addict, he will eat less bacon. Really? Meaning that it's not just because he likes the taste. 
it's because it's working on his brain. It, tr- it triggers the release of dopamine. Um, and you can quantify, and, and by the way, not just bacon, but with other meats too. But with bacon, what do you have going for it? You have meat. We see this, you could see it even with tuna a little bit. But with bacon, it's quite high in fat, especially saturated fat, which is also in chocolate. Um, but now, a lot of salt goes in. It's salt cured. Oh, yeah. Um, so nobody takes bacon. You know, they, they don't want just um, some raw pork or something like that. They, they want it cooked up, greased up, salted up, um, cured, and that's what they're going to love. The tragedy of all this, I mean, there's many tragedies. Uh, what happens on the farms is horrible for the for the animals. It's disgusting. For the environment, it's horrible. Um, for your health, it's terrible. But there was just a report that came out about two, three days ago looking at cancers in people under the age of 50. Unlike all the progress that we are slowly but surely making against cancer, we are losing the battle on colorectal cancer. Um, and the reason is that bacon is a fad. Wow. And we're, we have developed this nihilistic attitude that, ah, live it up. It's wonderful. Let's go out to the breakfast place and just have it and, and treat our sons and daughters to it so that it's part of their life. Let's serve it in schools. Let's serve it in hospitals. Um, the, the very hospital that will not give you cigarettes. They will not let you smoke. They, they used to sell them. They don't sell them anymore. We'll sell you bacon despite the fact that it's a major contributor to the second leading cause of cancer death, which is colorectal cancer. I'm not sure that a lot of people uh, are, are truly aware of that yet. And it probably has to do with that strong marketing campaign uh, from the, the bacon people. Not aware of the link with cancer, you mean? Right. As substantial as it is, or yeah. they're just willy-nilly about it. Matter of fact, let me tell you a story. Uh, I went down uh, – we recently did the Break Up With Bacon campaign, mm-hmm. and I interviewed people outside of a hospital where we had placed one of our advertisements and asked them about bacon, and I gave them some statistics. I think all but one of them said that they were still going to continue to eat the bacon. So I don't know if it's a matter of them not taking it seriously or they don't believe the science or what it is. When I was uh, a medical student and resident, um, it was quite normal for us to smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Our hospital sold them and we bought them and we would light up. Our patients could smoke in bed hmm. uh, unless unless oxygen was flowing. That was the, like, the only exception. <laughs> right, um, but, but, but it goes to your point. Um, it wasn't that we didn't know the risk. In that case, we clearly knew that lung cancer was was caused by tobacco. Um, and we weren't stupid people or uneducated people. But what we had was the sense that we could wait, um, that we had time. And yeah, I, I know i got to quit sooner or later, but for right now, I like this. I'm under stress. And I think with food habits, it's like that. I, I am not paying a big price yet. Um, I guarantee you, a nodule shows up in your chest x-ray. That person crushes that pack and <laughs> close it, throws it in the trash yeah. that minute. Um, so... It's really a question of a person just reaching that point. However, um, with bacon and, frankly, all the, all the processed meats, turkey bacon, sausage, uh, ham, hot dogs, all of them are linked to colorectal cancer and, and also breast cancer and esophageal cancer and pancreatic cancer and stomach cancer. Um, but there, there hasn't been a big public education campaign, or at least not a very successful one, nothing, nothing rivaling what happened with tobacco. Um, and so if people don't even know about it, then there isn't really any pressure mm. on a hospital or a school to stop selling these things. Two more quick points before we uh, wrap things up. Uh, I got a chart here 
and it shows the rate of obesity um, over the last 60 or so years. And what particularly struck out at me was the obesity rate, but then if you look at the bottom, you have the extreme obesity rate, and both of them climbing substantially. If you look at just the extreme obesity rate, it's grown 900% over the last half century or so. And I would assume that that is because we have become more and more of a quote-unquote fast food nation and more of those processed foods and and, uh, highly addictive foods that we've been talking about are becoming part of the standard American diet. Yeah, it's it's not uh, obesity is not caused by a lack of exercise. Um, exercise patterns have changed some over time, but not really dramatically. And and back way back when we weren't seeing it in people like the barber who, who's just standing all day long, or the person or the person who's got a shop um, right below their apartment. You know, mm-hmm. these people aren't exercising very much. They weren't they weren't heavy. Um, it's been food changes, meat went up and up and up and up until about 2004, 2005. Since then, it's been dropping a little bit, which which is good. Cheese, I'm sorry to tell you, has been shooting up like there's no tomorrow. Um, And I think that's one of the bigger reasons uh, for obesity. Sugar um, went up until about 1999. For the past 20 years, it's been dropping, Mm -hmm. which is good. Um, But the cheese is a big, big problem. So the final question is this. Somebody's here in this podcast. They're recognizing, like, okay, I have a problem. I am a cheese addict. I'm a chocoholic. I can't go a day without bacon. What do they do? How do you break that food addiction? Oh, great question. Uh, several things. Um, first, first of all, don't beat yourself up. As I mentioned earlier, this is not your fault at all. It's not, it's not you. It's the food. Foods have the capacity to addict anybody. And we saw this in, in, say, Vietnam with heroin. You know, people were over there, and there's heroin around. And virtually everybody, you know, who used it would get hooked. But when they would come back to the U.S. and heroin wasn't, like, available to them or whatever, they, they would just break away from it. So, so the point I'm making is it's the substance that's to blame, not you. Um, secondly, focus on the short term. Um, don't think, oh, I just love X food. The, the idea of life without it is intolerable to me. For, don't worry about that. Just focus on, for right now, I'm not going to have it. That's the reason why with Alcoholics Anonymous, one day at a time, right. or uh, a smoking cessation program, we focus on now, not, not forever. That makes it a lot easier. Um, don't let yourself get super hungry. In other words, eat breakfast. Eat lunch. Eat dinner. Um, at least a little bit, because otherwise, uh, when you're really hungry, cravings kick in, and we just throw our resolve out the the, the window. Um, be aware of the cycle. Uh, what is your time when the when the cravings kick in? And if it kicks in, do something inconsistent with that behavior. So, uh, if it happens when you're alone and it's in the evening, then don't be alone. You know, do something so that it can't happen. Um, don't do it in moderation you will find that moderation drags you right back into it. It's better if something doesn't love you, you just got to break up a bad relationship. Get it out of your life. And yeah, Whatever that, it is. That's, that's a tough – people debate that one all day long. Well, I'm going to be clear about this. And, and there may be – there are people who can do th- certain things in moderation. The person who smokes at uh, the occasional party, that's a person where they just aren't addicted yet. But if you're smoking every single day and you have not you, – you've broken free – and it's now been two months and you, have, you haven't had a cigarette, if you decide to light up the next day, you're back up to a pack a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's once, once you have gotten into the addiction and your brain has decided, okay, this is me now, um, 
at that point, moderation doesn't work. Right. Moderation only for you is going to work for healthy things like broccoli. You can have a moderate amount of broccoli and, right, and brown rice and all of these things, but for something that's going to hurt you, you don't want to have it at all. Um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, dopamine can be released by all the drugs and foods that we've been describing, but it's also released by exercise. Um, so if you can, can bring exercise into your life, do it. And by the way, don't wait until you want to. Some of the best advice I ever got was I read somewhere somebody saying, I never want to. <laughs> I never want to. And this is, this is the phrase, just do it. You know, all right, but I don't feel like exercising. So just do it. And what you discover is about halfway through, you're into it. Yeah. And then you're glad you did. And the next day, you're not going to want to do it again. But just forget, you know, you, if you wait until you want to, you will never do it. But exercise gives you a little bit of dopamine release. That's good. Now, in order to... Um, once you've exercised, you've got to make sure that you like plan it, put it on your schedule, treat it like an appointment with yourself, do it with someone else so that if you don't show up, they will call you. Um, and don't forget to sleep. 10 o'clock at night, I don't care how good your book is, go to sleep. Because if you have had a rotten night, if you stayed up all night, you'll eat anything just to get through the day. Sure. But if you are well-rested, you've got a little extra hedge against things that would otherwise call call your name. And maybe my last tip is think about other motivators, things that matter to you. Um, a lot of people will break up with cheese, meat, for the animals. Um, once you've seen what they go through, you think, all right, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, or they will do it for the environment. Or they'll do it for their son mm-hmm. or their daughter or their wife. You know, I don't want to be an enabler for somebody who's near to me. Think whatever those motivations are. Um, let them play out in your mind. You put these things together. Addictions are still powerful. Yeah. But these things will help you. And if you've uh, broken up and it didn't stick, who cares? Dust yourself off. Get back on. Uh, one, one last thing I, sh- I should mention. Um, earlier in the program, I was talking about it's not you. There are people who actually do genetically have less dopamine activity naturally. Other people have more. Um, some people have fewer dopamine receptors in their brain. They're just born that way. So it is true that those people discover that cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or food call out to them even more because it gives them the dopamine other people are getting naturally. Hmm. However, the, dis, despite the fact that there are these actual physical differences, and some people are a little bit more set up for addictions than others, as I mentioned at the beginning, the food industry can addict absolutely Anybody. Yes, indeed. Um, given the opportunity, they will do it. And uh, the good news is that we can break away. And, and once you've been free of it, you just, you just get momentum. You liked being, you know, stuffing yourself with food. You like smoking. But you like not doing that. Right. You like not doing that even better. Right. Um, and you get great momentum in that direction. Well, as a guy who has been through all of that, I can tell you that your advice is spot on. You and I have never talked about your tips, but those are virtually the exact steps that, that I took. So that is that is really, really good advice. So very much appreciate you being here today, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Great as always. say this. Every single episode that we do is important. They all have a purpose. But I think that this show, this episode, 
is really one of the most important because it gives insight and understanding into how doctors and even the average person, how you and I should be thinking about the way that we treat these diseases that are killing us. Talking about heart disease and diabetes and cancers. So many of these cases, so many of the deaths caused by them are completely preventable just by changing the way that we eat. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Sounds like one of the easiest things we can do. But anyone who has ever tried to lose weight will tell you that it is anything but easy. So please, what I ask of you this week is to share this show with your friends and your family. Heck, share it with your own doctor. Let them become inspired by the way that doctors Baxter Montgomery and Steve Loam are revolutionizing, shaking up the cardiac field. Help them understand that food addiction is about as real as it gets. It's no different than alcohol or heroin. And the consequences, by the way, are just as deadly. So please share the show and help flip the script and hopefully save some lives, right? That's what it's all about. Next week on the show, we will be continuing our conversations from the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine with the one and only Dr. Joel Kahn. He came to the exam room armed with three new reasons not to eat red meat. Reason number one, everybody write this down, four letters, T-M-A-O. And I'm really quick, in the last eight years, science out of the Cleveland Clinic and now all over the world, if you eat red meat, it has an amino acid called L-carnitine. doesn't matter if it's grass-fed or it's grain-fed, it has L-carnitine. And if you eat an egg yolk, it has choline. When it gets in your gut, if you're an average American, it causes the production of a chemical nobody talked about 10 years ago, TMAO. The point is, it actually promotes hardening of the arteries and it promotes clumping of the blood. And if you have hardened arteries and clumped blood, you're having a stroke or heart attack. So TMAO has become a big deal. That's where it comes from, red meat and egg yolk. It's like the vegan docs designed this molecule to uh, educate the public. It's not the case, it's our physiology. Interestingly, if you're a plant-based person and you get paid to eat a steak for a research project, you don't make this molecule because your gut doesn't know what to do with it. We got an advantage. Right, right. This week, here's reason number one, they did a randomized study in Australia. 45 people put on the Paleolithic diet. It's still hot, although it's fading a little. A lot of meat, a lot of greens, a lot of berries. It's not junk food, so it's better than junk food, but it's a lot of meat. And they put them on a standard Australian diet. TMAO levels very high on the paleo diet. Now, the paleo authors, the paleo doctors, the paleo food producers aren't going to blast that. It was blasted all over the world news. It's just one more reason to consider these new trendy diets like the paleo diet that you know 10 to 15 years of uh headline news for the paleo diet bad idea you know the berries and the greens great the right. increased red meat doesn't matter grass-fed doesn't matter grain-fed doesn't matter organic it's in the red meat that's uh, reason number one i would assume atkins and keto kind of the same principles would sure there. Yeah. sure they weren't the source of the diet described sure, as recent sure. study absolutely if yeah. you're eating a ribeye and calling it the carnivore diet the keto diet you're definitely going to expose you to this atherosclerosis. You know, these diets are new, 
Heart disease and cancer can take 10 to 20 years to come up into your life. Find out reasons two and three in the complete interview that will air on next week's show. So go ahead and subscribe right now if you haven't already done so. And that way, my friend, you can be one of the first to hear it. Subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are available. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating. And if you want to follow us on social media, we love to chat with you. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and the show and the Physicians Committee is on Twitter at PCRM and on Instagram at Physicians Committee, just spelled out. My thanks again to Drs. Montgomery and Loam for taking the time to join us this week. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember... Keep it plant-based.